Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It's September 29th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll bring you DJI's latest and possibly greatest drone, disruptive moves by three companies that will help many indie filmmakers, how to find and work with a composer for your film's score, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show, brought to you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We're here, as always, to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. One of those things might have been Independent Film Week here in New York. Yeah. Last week was IFP Film Week, and I went to a bunch of panels and saw a lot of events and even moderated a panel and ran into a bunch of friends who were bringing their films through the pitching process of the labs. And um, they were very stressed out. They were taking like 10 meetings a day back to back. And um, they, they just seemed like they were very much in the trenches. But they were very excited. What kind of meetings do these friends take? So a lot of them were working on documentary projects because they were in the doc lab. Um, not exactly sure what it's called. But they were taking meetings with like HBO, uh, Morgan Spurlock's company, really big players. Um, and they were basically... So what happens is you... You, you put a synopsis of your project and a pitch packet, basically, online somewhere. And then a representative from each company um, takes a look and then they seek you out if they might be interested in hearing your pitch. So then you get like 15 or 20 minutes to just, you know, speed date them, basically. And this is for people who have like applied and already been accepted into some sort of doc lab? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Independent Film Week invites like almost 100 projects of different genres. And, you know, we've talked about the application process here on the show. And basically, if you get get accepted, then they include your film, like Independent Film Week includes your film in their materials, and they facilitate meetings that you couldn't really get on your own with like HBO executives and others. But an interesting thing that I talked to a lot of people who had projects in the labs this year, and the main consensus was that nothing was going to come of these particular pitch meetings. They were more just like opening the door for a, a lifelong conversation about working with these people in the future. So like, they were all basically like, we don't expect to, to have to sign a deal or to immediately start working with HBO. We just expect to make a contact and then continue continue pursuing the relationship. Well, that's sometimes I think more valuable. Oh yeah, definitely. A lifelong contact. At they HBO call it the long tail. The long the long tail. The long tail. Planting seeds. Oh yes, you know? and watering them too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. A gardening festival. <laughs> really. <laughs> so at Independent Gardening Week. They have all kinds of panels. Um, you guys went to some too, right? Yeah, we did. Um, I went to a few, and uh, there's some articles covering those panels online already. Um, one was a panel about shooting on 16mm film, and the other was about sort of telling stories through music videos, which is something that I've covered sort of extensively here, weirdly. So I checked it out. You can check out those articles. Yeah, we also have posts on cinema in the age of VR and case studies on indie film hits like The Fits and Christine. So uh, you can check out all of the Independent Film Week posts at nofilmschool.com in the podcast post from this week. 
So that's not the only gardening news. <laughs> in related tree news, and related news about the environment. We call this news evergreen. <laughs> nice. Oh, bum. This is our headline segue, people. This piece of news kind of slipped under the radar when we were up at TIFF. But we're bringing it up now because it's really huge for indie filmmakers. So film distributor The Orchard, who is responsible for some films we love in at No Film School, like Hunt for the Wilder People and Louder Than Bombs. Christine. And Christine, which we just mentioned, has now become even more indie friendly by pledging to be fully financially transparent, allowing filmmakers to see the actual revenue, projected revenue and expenses from the beginning to the end of any film the company acquires or distributes. So each film will have its own real time analytics dashboard available online. And you can actually see a real example on their site now from Matthew Heinemann's Oscar nominated feature Cartel Land. So they're making those figures transparent, not only to Heinemann and his team, but to all of us. Most distributors and platforms are notoriously opaque about sharing data with filmmakers, which is not only frustrating for us as filmmakers, but it probably hurts the entire rollout and performance of the film because filmmakers are really our own film's best advocates. So without knowing any data, we don't know how best to promote the work. So we really hope that other companies follow the precedent that The Orchard is setting here for everyone's benefit. Speaking of initiatives that are beneficial to filmmakers, we've talked on the show about how some indie directors make a living doing commercial work, but here in New York, a lot more of us work in television for our day jobs, particularly in nonfiction, like long-form TV docs or reality TV. One of the most active production companies in town is Peacock Productions, which has employed many filmmakers I know personally at one time or another. They're the nonfiction wing of NBC Universal. But they function independently as their own production company, and so they make programming for several different networks. The thing is, unlike their counterparts in fiction TV, the Peacock folks have been barred from unionizing with the Writers Guild because NBC claimed that in nonfiction, writers are writers-slash-producers and therefore are supervisors and therefore are not allowed to unionize. It's like this legal technicality. So now, almost four years after Peacock employees first voted to unionize, the National Labor Relations Board has ruled that they are indeed allowed to unionize, and they'll now proceed to join the Writers Guild America East. So congrats, Peacock writers, and thanks for fighting the good fight on behalf of creatives everywhere. Another company that's disrupting the creative filmmaking space right now is a new company called Pretty Ideas. This company really capitalizes on the idea that hindsight is twenty twenty. A lot of the times when filmmakers are trying to sell their movies these days, they realize that hindsight is twenty twenty because they'll say things like, you know, I could have found a more experienced actress. I should have just waited to cast that person or... I should have gotten coverage on this rather than that, or I should have sold to this kind of distribution company which had better prospects with this international territory, blah, blah, blah. And as a sales agent, Ryan Campy of Visit Films has been in the trenches of these conversations for years. He's watched filmmakers miss opportunities left and right. And only recently, he figured out the only way to solve the problem would be to get involved from the beginning of the process. And I mean, the beginning, like the very beginning when the film was just a twinkle in its mother's eye. Recently, he poached Jennifer Sparber from the Weinstein Company to create this disruptive new production model under the banner of Visit Films, which most closely resembles an incubator because Pretty Ideas will get involved at the development stage. They'll help shape the, the film's actual narrative with the sales and distribution prospects in mind, and they'll even do things like provide living expenses for the filmmaker during the writing process, which really helps someone get off their feet. They'll see the film through the rest of its life, including providing vital input on casting 
and directing the producers towards the right collaborators for their specific project. Now, this is really exciting given the fact that one of the biggest problems, in my opinion, of with the industry these days is that it doesn't really support filmmakers creatively in the early stages of the process. And I think it will address some really key issues and provide a holistic framework for a film that goes through its life cycle. Recently, I spoke with Sparber about the company's inception, and she had a lot of really interesting things to say about the impetus for the the creation of the company in the first place and the things that the company itself will be able to do for filmmakers throughout the process. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you get involved with a project at the very end of post or, you know, you're seeing a rough cut or maybe even beyond that at a festival when you're seeing the final cut, um, there's, you know, most things can't be reversed at that point. You know, things like, oh, if you'd cast up that one character, if you'd had the connections or the money to cast up, you know, one person in this film, maybe international appeal skyrockets. Maybe your potential for global sales are that much better. Um, and same thing with, you know, there are really little things, like when you're on shoot, when you're a first or second time filmmaker, you might not be doing the proper photography that your marketing guys will need six months later. Um, so it's it's just, it's everything from the little stuff to the big stuff that, when you're reading those early drafts of the scripts, it's not always necessarily creative notes as much as, you know, scenes like this or, you know, these type of issues focusing on them are going to make it appeal to a wider audience or is going to make it appeal to an audience in Russia or Germany. And, and pointing those things out for filmmakers who might not have ever thought about their film playing beyond the U.S. or beyond the country that they're currently in. It was just kind of the answer to everything that I felt like I'd been looking for as far as sort of how the process can go wrong and bridging that gap between some of these really talented emerging filmmakers who have a lot of trouble on their second and third feature. You know, they've used up all their favors on their first feature and now it's a matter of I need more money, I need more time, I need more eyes on this project and most of them don't have those resources. As Barbara mentioned, the company is really going to be focusing on filmmakers with a proven track record. This is not the necessarily the best avenue for first, first-time filmmakers, but for filmmakers who have made a really successful short or who have made like a very good low-budget feature and have a proof of concept for their talent and just need the right avenue to, to launch their second film, this would be the perfect place to go. Sounds great. In the public service announcement portion of our show, if you are a U.S. citizen, your deadline for registration to vote in this November's presidential election is fast approaching. In New York, it's October 14th, and you can go to rockthevote.com to find the deadline for your state. On a cool film-related note, if you haven't registered yet, you can do so when you go see the slave revolt drama The Birth of a Nation, which was a highly praised Sundance hit. Fox Searchlight Pictures, their distributor, has set up voter enrollment in theater lobbies across the country prior to special promotional screenings of the film, which will continue through its October 7th opening weekend. Moving on to gear news, just last week we announced GoPro's first ever drone, the Karma, and its attempt to compete with Drone King's DJI. Well, this week, DJI served up its counteroffer, the Mavic Pro, and they came out swinging. Now, both of the drones will run you under a thousand bucks, and both of them are very portable with foldable designs that let you stick them in a backpack. But the Mavic seems to have a bunch of features that really give it a decided edge over the GoPro model. A few of the features that stood out to us are the vision positioning system, 
that uses five cameras to continuously monitor the drone's surroundings so it'll automatically avoid obstacles and return to its takeoff point to land with centimeter accuracy. It also has these kind of incredible autonomous flight capabilities so you can follow your subject while keeping the shot properly framed. So like if you're wanting to follow someone skiing down a hill, for example, and you frame it up, the camera will automatically keep that skier in the frame as they're going downhill. And even more sci-fi-ish is gesture control, where basically you can do certain hand movements while the drone is in the air to control it without using the remote. So like you can make a picture frame with your hands and it'll the drone will snap an aerial selfie. What happens if I do Tai Chi? You're going to have to find out. It'll like go over you in like a sort of sunset motion <laughs> and capture your flexibility and my aura and your aura yeah it's got an aura mode so aura mode check it out our resident drone guy randall asulto of burko aerial was actually at dji's launch event on tuesday and he said that these things are truly the size of a water bottle when they're folded up so they're that portable and he was really impressed with their stability in flight he was like it was as if they had a tripod under them in the air i never thought i'd say this but i'm actually excited to try one out especially in aura mode why, why are you? Why were you never excited to try a drone out? Uh, they creep me out a little bit. A little spooked? A little spooked. Oh, oh just I'm, in time for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting one over. They're, I mean, the footage, you know, it's just incredible what you can do with these little guys. Well, now you can also add to the creep factor of the drone's capabilities the addition of nighttime drone footage. That's just a very complicated way to say that Phylex has created an LED light that you can attach to your drone that will light up your footage during the nighttime. So this new drone-specific lightweight light called the AL250 creates the equivalent of a 200-watt tungsten source. In actuality, the tiny 30-watt LED can be strapped onto a drone by a GoPro mount, enabling filmmakers to position lighting wherever they want it and capture scenes not previously possible. How many of you witches are... (laughs) (laughs) What? Perfect. It's the perfect technology for witches looking to make a short film. (laughs) How many of you witches are planning to use this this October 31st? This is the September 30th show, not the October 30th show. Ghouls, goblins, and witches. (laughs) This is like our fourth Halloween reference. Despite its very small size, one would say maybe an elf or a goblin would use it. Or a very tiny witch. (laughs) Or perhaps a bat that hasn't yet transformed into a vampire. (laughs) Despite its very small size, coming in at only a little over half a pound, there's a Fresnel light built into the small unit and enough power from the lithium-ion battery for 25 minutes of flicker-free lighting. It's now available for $349. For rich witches. Now moving on to the upcoming events and deadlines portion of our show. Here are some grant deadlines for you. ScreenCraft's Short Film Production Fund has a deadline of September 30th. The grant brought to you by ScreenCraft and Bondit is for if you've got a short script or a short film at the early stages of production. If you do, you can score five to $20,000 in financing and production services. This grant is put out every four months, and at least one filmmaker will be awarded the full production grant of $20,000. The winners are announced six weeks after each final deadline. All it takes is $10, your script, a cover letter, and a log line to apply. Also coming up on September 30th is the Roy D. Grant in conjunction with From the Heart Productions, which gives out three grants a year, one for spring, one for summer, and now one for fall. 
And this fall, they'll give out $3,000 in cash and over $30,000 of in-kind services and products, including a Canon 5D Mark III with a lens package. The application is open for shorts, docs, and features with a budget under $500,000. From the Heart Productions, who's sponsoring the season's grant, says, We fund compelling stories about little-known subjects, historical films, and films that touch hearts. We like films that expose and bring important information to light, as well as films about little-known people where there is a good story. I just wanted to add, I actually applied for this grant before, um, and it has a really cool benefit that most uh, grants don't offer, which is that anyone who applies is um, welcome to get a free 15-minute consultation on the phone from one of the grant administrators, Carol Dean, and she'll actually give you feedback about your application and about your project, so it's worth applying just for that. Also worth mentioning that because the bulk of the grant's um, prizes are in-kind, it's more useful to you if you live on the East Coast of, of the U.S. or if you are going to be doing production or post-production on the East Coast, because most of the companies that are offering the in-kind services are in the Northeast. Now moving on to some festival deadlines. The Atlanta Film Festival has a deadline on September 30th. Now approaching its 41st year, the Atlanta Film Festival, an Academy Award qualifying festival, is the Southeast's preeminent celebration of cinema and flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. It's been recognized as the best film festival by Creative Loafing, Sunday Paper, 10 Best, and Atlanta Magazine, Shocker, as well as a top 50 festival worth the fee and 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. What is Creative Loafing? I don't know, but it's. <laughs> I'd say that Atlanta Magazine might be a bit biased in calling it the best film festival uh, internationally or nationally, whatever that refers to. The festival presents local and international works selected from over 4,800 submissions representing 37 countries. For Georgians, the Georgia Film Award, which is going to be unveiled this year, will honor a Georgia-made film from any filmmaker with a current Georgia address. How many times can you say Georgia in one sentence? Georgia... One and a half. Cash prizes range from $500 to $1,000, and they accompany the best narrative feature, best documentary feature, best narrative short, best documentary short, best animated short, and the newly minted Georgia Film Award. If you're looking for something smaller, the Boston Underground Film Festival has their regular deadline on September 30th. I love this festival, if only because its acronym is BUFF. Yeah, and that acronym is pretty apropos to their sort of slate, I guess I'd call it. They look for exceptional independent features and shorts in the categories of dark comedy, genre, dark sci-fi, cerebral and slash or psychedelic horror, unusual documentary, music video, animation, or films that defy description. So this is kind of like an alt-dark festival, which is pretty cool. And to sort of further build upon that aesthetic, instead of cash, they dole out trophies in the shape of a demonic black bunny with red eyes. <laughs> I definitely had dreams about that bunny in my childhood. <laughs> Bunicula. Yeah. The annual reward categories are audience awards for best of fest short, best of fest feature, the juried award for most effectively offensive, and director's choice for best short and best feature. And this is really cool. October 1st is your last chance to apply to Forbes Under 30 Short Film Festival. I'm sure that a lot of you are familiar with the Forbes Under 30 list, which comprises, I'm not sure how many, I guess, I think it's 30, right? It's, it's Forbes 30, 30, under 30 Under 30. So it comprises 30 of the most innovative business people or uh, disruptive 
young people or creative people, but now they're creating a film festival to take place while the regular 30 Under 30 festival is happening in Boston. So for the first time ever, Forbes Media is holding a short film festival open to filmmakers under the age of 30. The winning shorts will be shown at a miniature film festival during the Under 30 Summit in Boston from October 16th to 18th, and the judges will select one winner from each of four categories. Pretty typical categories, animated, live action slash theatrical, documentary, and shot on cell phone. That's not so typical. I like that. Yeah, the last one isn't a traditionally typical uh, category, but it seems like we're seeing those sprout up. They even have like festivals now solely designed for um, cell phone shot videos, which is interesting. And also, this will be cool to see one that has, uh, I guess, this distinguished of a prize, though. What? I couldn't hear you. I was busy feeling irrelevant and over 30. Oh, I'm sorry. Ah. Don't you just feel that way all the time, though? (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, all four category winners, this is really cool, will receive free attendance to the Under 30 Summit in Boston, which has an approximate retail value of $1,500. And this summit includes a music festival, food festival, and most importantly, opportunities to meet and network with pioneering millennials and mentors from the entertainment world and beyond. I've always wanted to meet a pioneering millennial. <laughs> hey, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> and just in case you were wondering of the prestige level of this festival, this year's attendee list includes Jessica Alba. Pioneer. Ashton Kutcher. Pioneer. Richard Branson. Super pioneer. And Scooter Braun. Definitely not a pioneer. None of those people are under 30. Well, they're former... Formerly under 30. They were thir- under 30 at one time. So I, I, I think they gave them a pass. For our Ask No Film School segment this week, we received a really, really nice email from Mark Hood. Thank you so much for writing. Mark wrote to say that he recently locked picture on his feature documentary and he cut it together with a temp score. But now that he's thinking about applying to some of the bigger film festivals, he wants to know how valuable is it to hire a composer as opposed to, you know, using a temp score, which like is possibly a more economical route. But on the other hand, he wonders if all things were equal, including cost, would the inclusion of original music by a composer give the project an edge over other films in competition for these festivals? I can answer your question, Mark, because I went to a panel at TIFF led by another Mark. This guy, however, scored The Witch, a very spooky movie. And like... 60 others. Yeah, and like 60 other movies. So, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to speak to this based off of the experience that I learned just from this hour and a half panel. Um, but it was very informative and I think that one thing to consider sort of just within the importance of an original score, The Witch got incredible reviews. It was one of the most it is by far actually the most popular indie film of this year and actually set records for being one of the highest selling indie films of all time as far as box office returns are concerned. But a lot of people say that the score of The Witch was the piece that really tied all of Robert Eggers' aesthetic qualities together to sort of build the world of The Witch. So I would say it sort of depends on what you're trying to achieve with your film. If you believe that a score could sort of cohesively bring together other elements of your film, then it's definitely worth investing in. And I think that Mark Corvin would agree. Essentially, what the panel came down to was how temp music is killing off a lot of jobs for actual composers. 
Corvin talked a lot about how directors actually become attached to the temp score after an editor uses music to cut the movie to, which seems like it could be something you're dealing with. Most directors will then come in and ask composers to just copy whatever the mood of the temp score is, however. In this sense, the job of the composer then becomes unwelding the director from his temp score and giving him something fresh, better, and new to work with that he would have never heard. In that sense, it also can give him an entirely new perspective on his own film. Corvin isn't naive in his endeavors as a composer, however. I understand that these days, editors and directors need temp music, he admitted. The editor needs temp music to get his cut approved. So, he provides this solution. What I'd like to suggest to people is to hire your composer early. Get them to pull from their own library of music. Use the composer's music and go from there instead of pulling from a John Williams score or whatever. For me, that's the lesser of two evils. So if you can't afford to hire a composer to score a new soundtrack for your film, perhaps consider finding a composer, or maybe just anyone you know who makes music, sit down with him and scour his library of work in search of something that you can already use without having to hire someone to come out and compose something entirely new for you. We have a lot of different articles on No Film School on this topic, and they almost always advocate for having an original score in terms of what it can bring, you know, the, the sort of level of professionalism and uniqueness that it can bring to your film. So because we think that there are decided advantages to using an original score, I called my talented friend Jeremy Flower to ask about what to expect when working with a composer. And he's worked on soundtracks for some names you might have heard, like Laura Poitras and, you know, this guy called Francis Ford Coppola. So here's what Jeremy had to say. I know this must also be arranged depending on the project and depending on the people, but Generally speaking, can you give any advice about how a filmmaker can budget for a composer or what kind of numbers they should be thinking about? Well, I mean, that's tricky because, um, I mean, I'm not going to speak for for anyone else's, any other composers because, you know, that's just not my place. But it's for me, it's always a sliding scale. I mean, it's always, you know, if there is serious funding behind a project, um, it's nice to be able to pay some bills. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's kind of it's, if it's much more DIY and um, I'm still interested in the project, I'll do it for you know whatever I consider worth it to get to get me to say no to other things. Um, and it's the age-old adage has been a thousand dollars per minute of music, but to me that seems a little Hollywood. Um, I feel like that's a little bit. Um, how do you say, optimistic as far as the composer is concerned, which when it comes down to it is really sad because the amount of time that a composer is going to put into your film is, you know, not insignificant. And you as the filmmaker, have to, you kind of have to think about what it would be worth to you to spend your time on, on somebody else's project. Um, but, you know, I've done, I've done short, uh, short films, you know, five minutes, et cetera, that have been roughly $750, and I've done short films that are five minutes that have been $3,000. So it's it's hard to know. Here are some movies and miniseries coming out this week. I say miniseries because HBO's Westworld is making its long-awaited series debut on Sunday, October 2nd. It's based off the popular 1973 sci-fi movie of the same name. Interestingly, that movie was written and directed by Michael Crichton before Jurassic Park. The latest version, however, 
was created by Jonathan and Lisa Joy Nolan. It's the story of a futuristic amusement park where the robot inhabitants are nearly identical to the human guests, and where those guests can live out their wildest fantasies as a character in the Old West. But, inevitably, things go horribly wrong. We have an interview with the cinematographer slated for a release later this week, so check it out and check out the show. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant on October 1st, if you haven't seen it, you can check out Troll 2. Have either of you guys seen Troll 2? Absolutely not. No? no. <laughs> I would definitely troll any message board about this movie. Well, yeah, I was going to say that this is a subject that many of our readers are familiar with. Just in time for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Now you can check out one of the worst movies ever made. Yes, that's right. It's so bad that you have to see it, and it's sort of become somewhat of a cult classic now. It was made on a $200,000 budget, so you can also use it as a cautionary tale for your micro-budget filmmaking. Don't use your money like these guys did, which was largely on shitty costumes and bad visual effects. Okay, you kind of sold it to me, actually. It's really good. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, so basically the premise is that it's the story of a young child who is terrified to discover his family trip has been planned for a town haunted by vile plant-eating monsters out of his worst nightmares. His attempt to save his beloved family is assisted by the ghost of his dead grandfather. But, surprisingly, there are no trolls in the movie. There are only goblins. This whole time I thought it was that movie about the trolls with, like, the fluorescent hair. Me too. Like, uh, no, that's actually, I think that's a new movie that's coming out. A troll. I think they are coming out. It's called Trolls. It's called Trolls. Yeah. Well, this is Troll 2. I'm not even sure if there was a Troll 1. That's how (laughs) weird this movie is. Um, Check it out if you can, guys. Hitting Netflix on October 3rd is Deepon by Jacques Coudard, a French filmmaker who won the top prize at Cannes, the the Palme d'Or, last year at the festival. Before that, he directed The Breakout, A Prophet. I love that movie. You do? Yeah, that's why I wrote it. Oh. <laughs> it's about a freedom fighter in Sri Lanka during the Civil War as it reaches its end, and the defeat is near. Um, Deepan, the main character, decides to flee, and he takes with him two strangers, a woman and a little girl, hoping that they'll help him find asylum in Europe. But once he arrives in Paris, the newly assembled family moves from one temporary home to another until Deepan finds work as the caretaker of a rundown housing block in the suburbs. No Film School writer Micah Van Hove conducted an interview with the director earlier this year. You can check it out on the site. So hitting theaters, one of the most exciting theatrical releases of the fall, I believe, Andrea Arnold's American Honey, coming out Friday, September 30th. I saw this film at Cannes. It was incredible. If you're an Andrea Arnold fan, it's everything you wanted more. It has her her characteristic, naturalistic style, you know, dialogue that seems like it couldn't have possibly been scripted. And in this case, it wasn't necessarily scripted. She kind of just grabbed this group of ragtag magazine salesmen from the Midwest and found a lead actress off the street and just put them on a road trip and sort of constructed the story loosely around that. It's a lot more dreamy than her other material and a little bit less gritty. So if you saw like Fish Tank, for example, it doesn't have the um, it has the the exploration of the lower class life um, in the material because that's what she's fascinated with as a filmmaker. But it doesn't necessarily have that like rough around the edges feel. It's a lot more polished. It also stars Shia LaBeouf and Riley Keough. Yeah. Also, this is pretty unfortunate, but me and Emily were at a party at TIFF and we kind of got invited to go to the American Honey after party after. 
and we didn't go, but we heard that it was like the craziest and best um, party it, maybe that Tiff has ever seen. There was like a mechanical bull there, and the party went on until like three or four in the morning, and the whole crew was there, and they were um, being transported from place to place, from like press conference to press conference, or screening to press conference in a party bus the entire time. I remember the PR person told us so. Sounds like a pretty good time. Sounds like some really cool people involved with the shooting of this movie, and I'm excited to see it. Also on Friday, in limited theatrical release is coming Among the Believers. This was one of the most memorable documentaries for me from last year's Tribeca. It's co-directed by Himal Trivedi and Mohammed Nakvi. It takes place in Pakistan, where the film has actually been banned, so that'll tell you a little something about it. Um, the movie offers absolutely incredible access to a radical Islamic religious school where you can really see that ISIS's war is being waged via the minds of very young children. It also shows a non-religious school run by a nuclear physicist who's trying to combat extremism, but he has struggles kind of getting any children to attend his school because the religious madrasas lure in very poor families by offering free education and free food and other benefits. It's just a really important movie to watch to start to understand the ideological battles that, for better or worse, are shaping the world right now. When you say that ISIS's war is being waged via the minds of very young children, do you mean that the very young children are the ones who are waging the war? Or is it... I mean that ISIS is starting so early, uh-huh. kind of winning over, quote-unquote, the hearts and minds. So to the point where they're taking over religious schools all over the region. So these kids, for example, one one of the scenes in the movie that totally freaked me out was like they have a coloring book just like we, we would have and they're learning the alphabet. And it would be, you know, like we might have A is for Apple. And I'm not making this up. There was like J is for Jihad and the picture in the coloring book was of the planes going toward the World Trade Center. So like they're starting them real, real young. And the parents are, are basically unaware because the parents don't go to school with the children. The parents just send their, their their children there thinking they're doing the right thing by sending their children to school. Scary. It's some scary stuff. It's it's a kind of a must-see. Not as scary as Halloween! Three or four more weeks! It's not October. That was an owl. Yeah. Ooh! Ooh. <laughs> I can't wait for a Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be this time's 10,000. Yeah. I think I'm out of town that month. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we no. got it. <laughs> we can bring all the spider webs we want. Criminy. Okay. Well, we've been all over the map with this episode. Thank you guys so much for joining us as always. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And of course, you can check out nofilmschool.com for the podcast post with the links to everything that we talked about on this show. And check out the site in general for all sorts of news about making films. And stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim John Jim. Jim 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 Jim. There's underscores in there. There's underscores. I'm not going to tell you where. Good luck. Three guesses. And I'm El Booter on the Twitter. And we're all at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye.